0: Let's all begin uh, turning to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. If you have a read Bible, you can find that pretty quickly by turning to page 959. So, 1 Corinthians chapter 12 this morning. I want to introduce myself and welcome you once again to Hope. My name is Joe Hack, and I'm the teaching pastor here at Hope. We are a church that exists to extend the welcome of Jesus to everyone who enters into our lives, especially into this room and into this house of worship. And so we are glad that you're here. If you have any questions about who we are, what we're about, um, what the welcome of Jesus even means or is, uh, then make sure you reach out to me after the service. I'd like to hang out near the coffee afterwards. Uh, But we are glad that you're here. As a church, we have been walking through Paul's letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians. And so we are continuing that journey this morning uh, on 1 Corinthians chapter 12. We are walking through this letter passage by passage. And this morning we began a new series on the Holy Spirit, Uh, because for the next four chapters really in this letter, uh, the Apostle Paul is focusing on the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit in the life of individual believers, the Holy Spirit in the life especially of the church. And I'm excited to begin this study uh, because I believe this study will fill a gap for many of us in our Christian life. Because to be Christian, this is kind of one-on-one right here, but we often forget this. To be Christian is to be Trinitarian. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Three in one. That's a mystery. It'll explode your brain if you think about it too much, but it's what scripture reveals God to be. In his own word, he says, this is who I am. Father, Son, and and Holy Spirit. Now, here's the thing. We may confess with our minds that we're Trinitarian, but often we confess with our lives that we're Benitarian. That means two in one. If you think about it, we relate to God as Father, we relate to God as Son, all day, every day. But what about God the Spirit? Well, this morning... We're going to be setting the stage for what's ahead. Paul says in verse 1 of our text this morning, about the spiritual gifts, brothers and sisters, I do not want you to be uninformed. Now, if you look down at your text, if you have the translation I'm using, you'll see a footnote right after spiritual gifts. And underneath in that footnote, you'll see or spiritual people. Do you see that? That is because the Greek, if you're reading this in the Greek, it could go either way. It could be spiritual gifts or it could be spiritual people. Because literally it says in the Greek, things of the spirit. And so there's a debate. Is Paul here talking about spiritual gifts or is he talking about spiritual people? And I don't know if this will surprise you, but I think it's both. I think it's both. I I believe Paul is giving us a foundational look at the Holy Spirit in these first three verses. Yeah, he will hone in on the spiritual gifts. He even has a different word for spiritual gifts that he'll use. But right now, I think he's simply saying, what does it mean to be spiritual? What is it to be a spiritual person? What is it to be a spiritual church? What is, in other words, true spirituality? Well, I really want to know the answer to that question personally. And so let me just read these first three verses of chapter 12 together. You can follow along and we'll pray and see what God has for us this morning. So this is God's Word, starting in verse 1 of chapter 12. Now, concerning spiritual gifts or spiritual people, brothers and sisters... Lord, would you speak, for your servants are listening. Holy Spirit, even as we speak of you and try to understand you, would you open the eyes of our hearts so that we would see Jesus? Not just learn about Jesus, not just accumulate facts about what it is to follow Jesus, or to be sons and daughters of You, God the Father, or to be spiritual by the Holy Spirit. We want to see and experience these things by Your Spirit. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, when I was in college, I joined a fraternity, and eventually they caught on that I wasn't like most of my fraternity brothers um, on the on the one hand, I loved to hang out, I loved the chapter meetings, I loved our events, I loved our t-shirts, <laughs> all of the above. But on the other hand, they knew that I went to church on Sunday, they knew that I studied the Bible, they knew I enjoyed studying the Bible. They knew that I prayed, and at parties they knew I was always drinking, like, boring things like soda and so there were some guys in my fraternity that described me as religious and that irked me that, that got to me I'm like I am not religious man um, and I totally understand that designation but I wanted to push back and say I'm not religious I'm, I'm, I'm spiritual you know I'm spiritual that's who I am and I know I wasn't alone because it was true of all of my Christian friends. Uh, we didn't like to be called religious. We liked to be called spiritual. It felt better to be known as spiritual and to think of ourselves as spiritual. To us, religion sounded sort of stuffy and self-righteous, but, but spirituality just sounded better. It resonated better. I think we kind of all agree with this, right? We all sort of feel this way. We all want to be spiritual. In fact, I think spirituality and being spiritual is probably one of the last universally admired traits that we have in our cultural moment. I see this in my own neighborhood. When, when people find out that I'm a pastor, they admire my spirituality, and about everything else, they Are kind of like weirded out. (laughs) I am strange. But my spirituality they admire. Whatever that means. Right? That's the problem. We don't really know what spirituality means. We are a spiritual culture. We have a high view of spirituality. We don't really know what it means. But we all like it. We all want it. We all admire it. And others. Uh, The latest research poll confirms this. So 27% of American adults think of themselves as spiritual. And this is the interesting thing. We all admit and we can all agree that our culture is becoming more secular. Well, apparently in the past five years, that percentage has gone up 8%. In just five short years. This trend has a name, spiritual but not religious, or SBNR. SBNR. Matthew Hedstrom, he's a professor of religion at the University of Virginia. He says, quote, Spiritual but not religious became a nice category that said, I am not some kind of cold-hearted atheist, but I'm not some kind of moralizing, prudish person either. I'm a nice, friendly, and spiritual person. I'm not religious. In fact, I learned this, that this word spiritual but not religious really took off with the online dating phenomenon. Because you're asked, who are you? And and no one wanted to check religious. (laughs) They wanted to check spiritual. We all want to be spiritual. Well, life in ancient Corinth, as we've been learning, is actually very similar to our cultural moment today. One of the reasons I've loved studying about ancient Corinth, as we've been Studying this letter to a church, a small house church in ancient Corinth, is all of the cultural overlap despite thousands of years and thousands of miles of difference. In fact, many scholars are pointing out that our current contemporary cultural moment is kind of bending backwards. And there's so many similarities. In fact, one scholar, George Hunter, says that our cultural moment could be described as neo-barbarian. I won't get into why he says that. But the point is, there is a lot of similarity, even as there's a lot of difference in Corinth. So they were, they were spiritual. They loved spirituality. They loved spirituality. There were temple, temples all over the city. There were these things called mystery religions that were all the rage mystery religions. These were spiritual communities that had these secret ceremonies to, to sort of draw a line between who's in and who's out. Uh, they had no doctrine, really. No statement of belief. It was really all about a profound experience and living your best life. You join the mystery cult or the mystery religion because you thought it would enhance your opportunities, your, your personal connections, or maybe your interface with the God that controlled farming or the God that controlled whatever vocation you were in. And so you had this profound experience, this sort of what you thought of as a union with this God, to live your best life. I mean, does this sound familiar? Is this not the state of sort of spirituality today? Like us, Corinthian culture was all about success and status. Corinth was where you went if you wanted to make it big. It was like New York City or Los Angeles. And so, Corinthians married status-seeking and spirituality. Whenever I go to Whole Foods and I look at the magazine rack while I'm waiting to buy my food, I look at these beautiful, successful people on the magazine covers who are so good at being spiritual. (laughs) They just look good being spiritual, and they're apparently very good at it because they have a full cover article on some magazine. I think of Corinth when I see those. And so, what would happen is this spirit, this sort of status, spirituality, marriage, started to bleed into the early church. These Corinthian men and women encountered something better than mystery religion—the risen Jesus—but they started bragging about it, one-upping each other about it, creating a sort of a sort of um, status pecking order about who was more spiritual and who was less spiritual. I mean, if they had the technology, they would probably blog about it. They would probably gram about it. They, they would probably post about it. And the post would be something like, how to win at life by having you know spirituality. They were monetizing it. And then walks the Apostle Paul in this letter. And what he does in verse 1 is he essentially lays down the gauntlet. We don't see it. We probably didn't hear it when we heard it read aloud, but I'll read it again. He says, Now concerning spirituality, brothers and sisters, I do not want you to be uninformed. This is a rebuke. He's walking into a community of people who thought they had spirituality down. And he says... Um, you're uninformed. (laughs) Let me inform you. This is a rebuke. It would be kind of like walking into a CrossFit gym and standing up on one of their platforms they jump on and saying, I do not want you all to be uninformed about fitness. That's what it would feel like. Or like going to some conference Of spiritual gurus who have blogs and who have magazine articles. And walking in and saying, I do not want you, brothers and sisters, to be uninformed about the thing that you're really, like, proud of. Your spirituality. Well, that's what Paul does. That's what Paul does. He says, I'm sorry, but you really don't know what true spirituality is. And then Paul, I think, gives them a beautiful but concise definition of true spirituality in what follows. And like them, I think we need the clarity that he offers. And so what is true spirituality? That's the question I want to ask. Well, first, I think from this text we can see right away that true spirituality is connected to God the Holy Spirit. When Paul uses the word spiritual, this is what he means. To be spiritual is to be connected to God the Holy Spirit. Christians are never just vaguely spiritual. We are people of God the Spirit. That's what it means to be spiritual. We have the Spirit of God. I think we have a low bar for spirituality in our cultural moment because we're so secular. I think anybody who believes in the supernatural is automatically spiritual. And in a sense, maybe by one definition, that's true. If you're open to the supernatural, you are therefore spiritual. But Paul's definition is not that. Okay, Paul's definition and the Bible's definition of spirituality is being connected to the Holy Spirit, God, the Holy Spirit. That's what spiritual means. We're connected to the living God. We have a we'll call it holy spirituality. And so who is the Holy Spirit? Well, we get whispers of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament at creation with the prophets. There are certain people and artists who are empowered by the Holy Spirit from time in and time out in the Old Testament. God sends renewal through the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. But we get shouts about it in the New Testament. Jesus promises in John another helper. His words, another helper. Connecting the work of the Holy Spirit to himself in a way. He's saying, I'm leaving you in my death, my resurrection, and my ascension. But when I go, he says to his disciples, I will send another helper. And that another helper is God the Holy Spirit. And this helper is, in the words of one theologian, J.I. Packer, a distinct divine person who speaks, who teaches, who witnesses, who searches. Who determines, who intercedes, who can be lied to, who can be grieved. And so we're right to talk about the Holy Spirit in personal terms. This isn't some force or some gas that we sort of have. This is the Holy God Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three in one. Jesus says, Go therefore and baptize in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. We call the Spirit Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit is the Holy God. He is God. The Father is God. The Son is God. The Spirit is God. That's what we believe. And that's what we see in the Scriptures. Now, what does the Holy Spirit do in our lives? Well, if spirituality uh, is going to always be connected to the Holy Spirit, then we need to sort of see what is it that happens when we're connected to the Holy Spirit. And this is just a classic list. But the first thing that happens is you're reborn when you're connected to the Holy Spirit. So in John 3, Jesus answers them, saying, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless, he's talking to Nicodemus, unless one is born again or born from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Think about that. Unless you are born or regenerated again or from above, you cannot see the kingdom of God. You can't see it. You're blind to it. And so the Spirit, if you're connected to God, the Spirit, you have sight all of a sudden, spiritual sight. Nicodemus says to him, How can a man be born again when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is Spirit. So the Holy Spirit being connected to the Holy Spirit means that you are reborn. It also means that you are empowered. You are empowered. So Acts 1.8 says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and to all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Implying, therefore, that we do not live our Christian lives in our own strength, but by the power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit empowers us. The Holy Spirit makes our hearts see Jesus. Ephesians 1, 17 says this, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him. And listen to this, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. I love that language. It was a cheesy Christian worship song in the 90s. Open the eyes of my heart, Lord. But that is a spiritually profound prayer. It's a biblical prayer. I think we should bring that song back, John. Amen? Let's bring it back. We kind of already have, haven't we? A little bit. The Spirit opens the eyes of our hearts. What that means is that our hearts are blind unless the Spirit opens them. And what does the Spirit open our, our hearts to that we may know what is the hope to which God has called us? The Holy Spirit, when we're connected to the Holy Spirit, we start to look like Jesus. So Second Corinthians 3.18 says, And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image of the Lord. Of Jesus, from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. The Spirit is at work in His people, individually and as a community, to look more and more and more in the image of Jesus. That's what it looks like to be spiritual. It's not vague. It's definite. It works us. It transforms us into the image of Jesus. And then the Holy Spirit, we see in Romans 8, 16, gives us assurance. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. The Holy Spirit gifts us, and this will be really the focus of 1 Corinthians in the coming weeks, 1 Corinthians 12 says, To each is given the manifestation of the Holy Spirit for the common good. So the Holy Spirit wants the church, the common good, to flourish and to grow. And therefore, the Holy Spirit gives each one of you a gift, a manifestation of the Holy Spirit. Why? So that you can be awesome? No, not so that you can be awesome. So that you can serve others. The gifts aren't for yourself. They're for the person sitting next to you. And so the Holy Spirit, to be spiritual, is to be serving one another with the manifestation of the Holy Spirit in your life. That's very definite. That's not vague. Spirituality has a, has a clear, clear motive here. The common good of the church. And in Romans 5.5 five. 5. The Holy Spirit means that we actually feel the love of God. Not just know it, but feel it. And this might make some of us a little uneasy, but for me, this comes as good news. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 5.5. 5. And hope does not put us to shame. Why? Because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, which has been given to us. So the difference between hearing Or reading, I love you, and getting a hug. That's the difference between reading that God loves me in the Bible and feeling God loves me by the Holy Spirit. There is a pouring into your heart that is a gift of the Spirit. Where you feel His love, you feel His power, and you feel His presence. And yes, I'm using the word feel. I'm putting both feet on that word feel right now. I'm not nuancing it. Paul, it's clear in his letters, expects that that somebody who's connected to the Holy Spirit will experience the love of God. And that is a good promise. If we haven't experienced the love of God, we ought to pray that we would experience the love of God. And listen, I just went through a classic list that you can find in a theology workbook. There's so much more in the Bible, in the Word, that tells us about God the Spirit, and His power and His presence in and among our lives. But it's been asked, if all the verses in the Bible about the Holy Spirit were removed from your Bible, would it change anything in your Christian discipleship? That's a good question. It's a searching question. Because if we're honest, maybe we would say not much. Maybe we've so sort of um, boiled down our Christian walk into activism, like things that, that we ought to do as as followers of Jesus, that we've missed God the Holy Spirit. Or maybe on the other hand, we've so boiled down our walk with Jesus uh, to, to doctrine and to correct thinking about God that we sort of have sort of lost God the Holy Spirit in it all. If all the references to God the Holy Spirit were removed from your Bible, what would change in your life? So, what I want to do is I want to spend this season getting to know. The Holy Spirit. We'll be looking, as I said, at what it looks like when the Holy Spirit is manifested in the church in the coming weeks. From the Apostle Paul. And the gift that he gives us. This is going to be a picture of true spirituality. Because true spirituality is holy spirituality. It's the Holy Spirit in and among us. Uh, The 19th century London preacher, Charles Spurgeon, he used to say this as he walked up to his pulpit. He used to say, in the words of the Apostles' Creed, I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Spirit. Like, with each step. Because in those days, you walked up like a spiral staircase in order to preach, I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Spirit. And listen, you can do the same. You may not be walking up to a pulpit, but as you walk to your job, as you walk toward your child, as you walk towards your friend, your boyfriend, your girlfriend, your spouse, as you walk towards your your um, your neighbor, you can say, "I believe in the Holy Spirit." I want you to turn the keys off in your car, and as you're walking towards your house. Where your family is, or if you're walking towards your job, where that tough colleague is, I want you to, with each step, just simply say, I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Spirit. And I think in doing that, you will indeed be inviting God the Spirit into that circumstance, into that relationship. His presence, His empowerment. True spirituality, after all, is just that. It's being connected to God the Holy Spirit. There's a few other things that we're just going to briefly talk about before we wrap it up this morning, and it's this. Number two, true spirituality is God-centered. So Paul makes this very clear in this letter. So if you were to turn back, and you can if you want, to chapter 2, verse 12 you'll see what Paul says about God the Spirit. He says, Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the capital S Spirit who is from God. That we might understand the things freely given us by God. And so Paul, right away, is drawing a polemic or a difference between how they understood spirituality and how followers of Jesus understand spirituality. Followers of Jesus, according to Paul, receive... The spirit from God. So it's not something that you sort of stir up inside of you, do you see? I think a lot of us, and certainly the Corinthians in this day, thought that spirituality was essentially self-generated. It's like we have a spirituality gene that just needs to be agitated or or woken up. Or I think of those glow sticks that my kids play with sometimes. You know, you just have to snap it and it starts glowing. It's like all of us are sort of a spiritual glow stick that just needs snapped, you know? And, and then we're and then we're spiritual all of a sudden. But that's not really the picture we have from Paul. He says, he says, but the Spirit is from God. From God. It's a gift to us that we receive. And so it's not self-generated. And then in, in our text that we read this morning, we learn it's not self-centered, but it's God-centered. He says. In verse 3, Therefore I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. Now this is a famously hard to interpret line of text. Because in the Greek, the word here that he uses is actually Jesus curse. Jesus curse. That's it. Jesus hyphen curse. And so what we need to do is we need to figure out what Paul is saying. And there's two, really three options. The first option is Whoever says Jesus is accursed, is accursed. So Jesus cursed, and, and we add the word is in between. Jesus is accursed. The other option is to say Jesus grants a curse. So whoever says Jesus grants a curse. And there's the other option, Jesus is a curse. So you can find out real quick why this is a hard one. But I'm drawn to the option about Jesus grants a curse because we now know that in Corinth, they have discovered, archaeologists have discovered these things called curse tablets. Curse tablets. And, and these ancient Corinthians, in the time of Paul, would consult these curse tablets. They had like curses on them from sort of the deities of their, of their culture and they would curse their rivals with these curses and these curse tablets. And their rivals would be rivals in sports and rivals in business and ex-lovers. Lawsuits that were going on. And you would simply have this, like we have books on our shelf, and you would be like, you know what? I don't want it to go well for them. So you would, you would issue this Curse. So for, for me, it's no stretch to imagine that these Corinthians, as they encounter Jesus, they're like, Jesus is a superpower God. And I can like, you know, really tap into him in order to sort of live my best life and, and, and sort of watch them go down. And Paul's saying, if you have the Holy Spirit, you're not going to do that. You've missed, you've missed the boat about Jesus, if you're going to do that. Paul's probably referencing this when he says that. True spirituality doesn't curse others in Jesus' name. And that's what they were doing, because they were using spirituality for self-gain. Now, I can do this. Your pastor can do this. I may not use Jesus to curse other sports teams, although I used to do that in high school. And be honest, those of you who have, like, watched a Buckeye game or whatever your team of choice is, I'm sure you have a history somewhere in your past of praying that you will win and praying that they will lose, right? Can I get an admittance here? Is, there on, is this an honest space, okay? Have, have we done that before? I mean, I see people on TV doing it all the time, right? It's like, it's like March Madness is coming up. And right there towards the end, with the, when everything's coming down to the wire, you'll see people doing this. Like, what are they doing? What are they doing? Well, they're doing something very Corinthian. They are. They want to win. They want to advance. And they want the person who stands in the way of that advancement to go down and to lose. And that's what it is that they're doing. They're saying, Jesus, curse them. I want my business to win. I want my athlete to win. I want to move on from my ex-lover, like whatever it is. And Paul is just simply saying, you can't do that. The Holy Spirit is not behind that. Oh, but so often spirituality becomes selfish in my life. It just becomes about me. It becomes about my advancement in life. I can become so interested in spiritual practices that I become more and more obsessed with myself. And impressed with myself. And I can drop all kinds of balls with the relationships in my life. Uh, but a holy spirituality creates a giving attitude towards others. Not a taking attitude. And so, the Corinthians had what I will call a magical spirituality. Magic in that day is all about manipulation for self-gain. And so often we can approach ministry and, with magical thinking. I'm doing this so that God will manipulate my life in order to be what I want for life and in order for me to have my best life. And and, and, and honestly, it's all kind of about me in the end. And I think this is a good test. Paul would say, no, no, no. You misunderstand the life of the Spirit in your life. The Holy Spirit is not about self-advancement. Well, then what is it about? This is the last point. True spirituality is connected to the Holy Spirit. It's centered on God. And it's confessing Jesus as Lord. True spirituality confesses the Lordship of Jesus. Paul talks about the Lordship of Jesus in his letters 220 times. We don't have many letters in our New Testament from Paul. I mean, most of them are Paul's letters, but there's not a ton of letters. And so for him to reference the lordship of Jesus 220 times is unbelievable. But he did it over and over and over again. In fact, Jesus is Lord, which is what we have here, is probably the most ancient confession of faith that we have. And Paul says, true spirituality leads us to confess it. Jesus is Lord. Do you want a definition of true spirituality? It's right here. True spirituality is confessing the Lordship of Jesus. The Holy Spirit causes us to do that. Now, what does that mean? Well... It's three things. It's a head nod, it's a heart posture, and it's empty hands. It's a head nod in the sense that to confess the lordship of Jesus is to affirm with our minds that Jesus died, that he, that he rose, and that he's coming again. There's an intellectual component to confessing the lordship of Jesus. We are saying with our brains, yes, Jesus is who he said he was. But <laughs> confessing the lordship of Jesus is so much More than that, it's a heart posture. I love theologian Anthony Thistleton. He says, To confess that Jesus is Lord, kurios, the Greek word, involves the whole self in an attitude of trust, obedience, commitment, loyalty, and reverence to Jesus as the Lord who has the care of one's life. Paul says you were bought with a price. You do not belong to yourself anymore. You belong to the Lord Jesus. That's what it meant to confess the lordship of Jesus. It wasn't just a head nod. It was a heart posture. In Paul's day, if you confessed, Caesar is Lord. In Corinth, if you confessed, Caesar is Lord. It was more than a head nod. It was a life approach. It was a posture of commitment and loyalty and trust. To Caesar. And so to say Jesus is Lord, it's more than a mental ascent. It is a life approach. That Jesus is my loyalty and my trust and my commitment. And so it's open. It's, it's, a, it's a heart posture. And finally, it's empty hands. When you confess that Jesus is Lord, you drop everything at his feet. You drop your past at his feet you drop your present at his feet you drop your future at his feet your dreams your your fears your job your family your relationships you give everything to him and that is the greatest gift that is the greatest gift that is the greatest gift God the Holy Spirit enables us to drop everything at the feet of Lord Jesus. You all know this. There's nothing better than good leadership. It makes everybody in the organization relax. I was able to relax on my sabbatical because I know we have good leaders. And that's what the lordship of Jesus is times a million He's the best leader ever lived, and we can trust him with everything in our lives. We can lay down everything before him. And so to be spiritual, Paul says, is to say Jesus is Lord, which is to relax into the lordship of Jesus. It's to relax into the leadership of Jesus. It's to relax and to be loyal to Jesus. It's to relax and to give our trust in Jesus. It's to relax and to say, I am so tired of trying to be Lord of my own life. It's to relax and to say, Whatever else I'm trusting in does not deliver. These things that don't deliver, Paul says, are mute idols. They have no power. They have no power at all. And yet we're led to them, Paul says. We're led to them. But no, think about them. All the things that we want to grasp onto and that we want to sort of be loyal to in order to sort of get our life right, how has that worked out for you? Your job, money, success, health, These things promise so much, but Paul says they're mute. They can't speak. They have no power. They can't deliver. Now consider giving everything in your life to Jesus. That is true spirituality. It's saying with your body, Jesus, you are my everything. You're saying with your heart, not just your lips, there is no political leader who will make my life okay. There is no job advancement that will make my life okay. There is no health condition that will make my life ultimately okay. It's saying with all of you, no job, no romance will solve my problems. Only Jesus. That's true spirituality. So, Lord, we ask that you would grant us true spirituality in this church. We recognize, Lord, that there is a backbone to our spirituality. It's connected to you, God, the Spirit. It's not vague. It's defined. It has a shape. But, Lord, we also see that to be spiritual is to forget ourselves. In worship of you and in service of others. And I just pray, Lord, that that would happen. That would happen in our lives and in this worship space. And it's in Jesus' name we pray this. Amen.